This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing well. It is uh, kind of interesting weather-wise. We had a little bit of a winter, and now we are not having much of a winter at all. I've heard that we were going to get a ton more snow, and instead we're just getting rain. So yeah, I don't I know was, what's happening. I was disappointed to wake up and hear hear the raindrops outside. I was like, oh, I wanted snow. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of on the fence because like the less snow we have, the less pretty it is, sure, but also the less I have to shovel or snowplow, which is nice, especially because I don't have a garage currently. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of enjoying it. I know that you're a big winter sports enthusiast, though. You like to get out on the fat biking trails. You like to do the brim ball, all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that you're pretty disappointed by the weather. Yeah, and I just, I, I, I was driving around down to Sturgeon Bay yesterday and it's just like so gray and gross looking. I, I want snow. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully we'll get it soon and it'll be pretty and easy to manage and everybody will be happy, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. So this week, Miles, uh, we have a couple of things to go over. I think that we should jump into vaccine information right away. We won't sure. spend a ton of time on it. I just feel like it's something that people are constantly thinking about right now. So let's yep. let's jump into it first. Uh, we talked a little bit about the, the rollout. You had an interview with Dr. Jim Heiss on the podcast last week talking about it. Uh, let, let me know where we are kind of right now in terms of how it's rolling out and who's been vaccinated and who hasn't yet. Um, yeah. So it, over the last 10 days or so, I've had conversations with uh, public health officials, uh, Door County Medical Center, um, and emergency management in the county, and have had my own conversations and my my parents' own attempts to get vaccinated. Um, it's it's a confusing muddle right now. I mean, that, that it sounds, from the hospital standpoint, everybody in that phase 1A who wanted the vaccine has had it for a couple of weeks now. So they finished their their first phase of vaccinations and has basically been waiting on the okay to expand their efforts to the next wave, the 1Bs. Um, and the state has been trying to figure out like who falls into that category. And um, the state assembly has been pushing them to open that up to, to a much wider net. The CDC guidance on who should be in that next phase continues to change almost every few days. So, at, for example, a few days ago, they were saying that next phase should be anybody over the age of 70. Now they've lowered to anybody over the age of 65. So then the states have to, that trickles down to the states because we don't, we still don't have like a national plan or guidance for, or we have guidance, but we don't have a, a national plan to follow. So each state is then, just like with testing, they're taking that CDC guidance and trying to apply it to their particular state and their particular demographics. So... In Wisconsin, we have an older population than some states. We have more people in nursing homes than other states do proportionally. So that's why you see like Wisconsin has to come up with a slightly different approach to this than say uh, California or uh, Florida. So that's you're you're leave, we're once again leaving this up to the states. And the same people tasked with doing this are the people who are tasked with testing and contact tracing. So it's still going through Health and Human Services for the most part. So again, we're we're. The federal government shipped them out, then said states figure it out from here. And the states then, who figures that out for the states? Health and Human Services. And they're they're not a logistical company. Honestly, it probably should have been put more on the backs of, say, like a, a National Guard or a, uh, at least the logistics side of it or the Army. But um, so now we have 
the same people who are doing trying to do contact tracing and testing even in Door County are now trying to figure out the vaccination plan too. Right. And it it is a confusing thing across the country, right? I, I heard one doctor say that the best advice that they could give was to just listen to the folks who are going to be talking about it, right? Listen to the, the chief of medicine for your local hospital. Listen to your governor, your mayor, because in some instances they might say like, hey, we have this many vaccines for people this age group and we have to use them today because we unthawed them this morning, yep. right? So you might get things like that where it's like, oh, now I have to run to the hospital to try to get it. But then you get people lining up and it, it's this weird thing there. Th- that's the one of the challenges about the vaccine, too, is that once you unthaw it, you can't refreeze it. Right. Uh, so if you unthaw your quotient for the day and it's not used by the end of the day, then it's like, do you waste that or do you open it up to everybody and try to just get it out so that you're not wasting any of the vaccine? Uh, it becomes kind of a weird logistical game, especially as you're trying to um gauge the supply and demand because you can't go back right you can't say like oh we over we overdid it and now we lost a hundred vaccines um the the other thing that i think is still kind of confusing is that these brackets are broken up by age but also people with um like autoimmune diseases or like pre-existing conditions that might need the vaccine sooner and then the question that i have then is like okay so is it people 85 and up and everybody who has uh, like an autoimmune disease, like when does that fit in? Because if you are in your 50s and you have a pre-existing condition, that means that you, you know, would would fare very poorly with COVID-19. Does that mean that you are jumped up to the front of the line as well? Or do you have to wait for your age bracket? Like that's, that's the thing that I think is still confusing for a lot of people. Yeah, I know they've worked through, um, th- so they start with the hospital, the healthcare workers, then they go to nursing home workers and the nursing home um, residents. And then, you know, uh, living facilities that are not nursing homes, we're not part of that wave. I think that's kind of the wave they're getting to now. They've also started, uh, public health did a vaccine clinic on Wednesday for people who are home healthcare workers, but are not affiliated with like a Scandia Village or a Door County Medical Center, which already got their first rounds. So it's people who work independently. But um, like in my dad's case, uh, he just got his first shot and he was... He's the caretaker for my mother at home. And so he was able to fit into that wave, but he's not like a a nurse. And I think that's kind of the wave they're getting into. Uh, I think they, as of yesterday, were close to 1,500 people vaccinated in Door County. Um, The guidance on that next wave, I I believe it's going to be like EMS workers, firefighters, uh, kind of emergency care workers. Actually, in Wisconsin, mink farmers are kind of in that next wave because I guess the virus spreads really easy easily among mink which is a kind of random thing um so there's so many more aspects that they have to take in into account um any sort of group living scenarios is a a high risk area so they're trying to focus on those which includes prisons so there has been some pushback by uh legislators that well why are we prioritizing inmates and you know on on the flip side like it has spread like wildfire in prisons and jail settings throughout the country and while yes we've imprisoned people like does that like are we saying they don't count anymore like depending like, right. so there's a lot of different types of people in prison i'm sure there are plenty of people in there that a lot of the population would say like fine <laughs> but there's a lot of people's friends and family in prison too and yeah i, I mean regardless around, there's so. when you, when you say that there are people in prison i think you're kind of laying it out there right there they're people right and yeah. and everybody deserves to be safe from this well that's that's the debate though is do they get prioritized over say your parents or um, law-abiding citizens. You know, that's, but 
the the other people that are exposed in prisons are the guards and the staff at those prisons and that in some cases that can be hundreds of people so you are protecting them as well and they're they're putting themselves in harm's way so there's a lot of different aspects that have to be considered and there's no perfect rollout and i think you know the supply has been slower to roll out than anticipated and there were some other factors that have slowed this down the holidays um falling after you know we had the first one approved in early november but then you had the thanksgiving christmas holiday new year's holiday that just slows down healthcare's ability to roll this out um you had a big snowstorm on the east coast that actually did slow down like shipping of a lot of vaccines and then you have kind of the confusion over all right we have all these vaccines we have to hold some back because we have to hold them back for the second dose so if you give out a hundred thousand you need to have that second dose available when when it's time to give that out right and now there's been you know, changes in how they want to do that in saying like, all right, let's get everybody the first dose and then worry about the second dose later because we're going to get a greater, faster um, track to herd immunity if we get more people with one dose than if we just focus on getting those first waves with two doses. So a lot of things to consider. I know in Door County, they don't even know which version of the virus they're going to get when they place their orders. So they might get Moderna. Early they were getting Moderna, but then now they've gotten Pfizer too. So then you my understanding is you can't give a first dose of Moderna and then follow that up with a Pfizer. So you got to mm. make sure you have the right ones on hand for that second dose as well. So there's just a lot of logistical questions. And in talking to Dan Kane, the emergency management director, he goes, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. It is it is a lot of work right now. It's pretty exhausting. But he said, I feel very confident that in a week or two, we're going to we're gonna start getting this thing rolling. But it's been a really tough rollout. And they, there's just not the supply that people are led to believe there is. Right. Well, I'm sure that we will continue to talk about the vaccines for weeks and weeks to come as things continue to get sorted out. Is there anything else about the vaccines this week that we should touch on before we move on? I will say we will have a regular vaccine update from Public Health in our daily email uh, on PulsePix and on our website. So if you are not subscribed to PulsePix, uh, go to PulsePix.com, sign up. We give a daily update on the the basics of COVID, like how many cases, hospitalizations and deaths in Door County and Kiwani County every day. We've been doing that for months, but also now we'll have the latest information that we can get from the hospital and public health on the vaccinations will be there as well. And that's not to say that it's hard and fast stuff right now. They're they're learning hour by hour where things are going to fall. So, but we're going to try and get that information out there too. Right. So next up, uh, Ryan Heiss, who we've had on the podcast before. I'm mm-hmm. sure we've talked about him as well, but he uh, is leaving his position as the village administrator in Egg Harbor. Uh, he is heading over to Michigan. I actually saw him on the surfboard heading over there physically. So <laughs> uh, best of luck, Ryan. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, what, what Ryan kind of leaves in his wake in Egg Harbor as he's heading off to greener pastures. Well, be, besides those those surfing waves, um, yeah, Ryan's been the administrator for five years, and it's been a very pivotal five years for the village of Egg Harbor. And, you know, the administrator position, that's not like a mayor. It's not like you take charge and you run the policies. But there are different approaches to that position that one can take. And um, in some cases, a, a village or city administrator will very much be, hey, I take my orders from the board and I execute them. And that's what I do. And in some cases... Um, the administrator will take more of a leadership role and try to, all right, yes, I do what I'm told to execute, but I also bring ideas to the board and try to um, in, have input on the vision of this community. And Ryan was definitely of the latter. Um, he he was brought in to run two projects for the village, largely, is the Crest Pavilion was on, like the, the planning stages for that were underway. And then the um, 
the highway redevelopment project, reconstruction. And at first they were going to try and do both of those at once. As Ryan told me, he said, I'm glad they did not because the crest ended up being, that, that was a big monster to undertake and ended up, although now they will go to referendum to fund the ongoing cost, which was a fear from the very start. But I think people in the village of Egg Harbor are very happy with that facility. And then they've been doing a lot of planning for the highway project and how to get that right and not run into some of the issues that um, the town of Gibraltar has run into with theirs. So, but he's also like led a, an endeavor to become a green tier community and, and really in, implement sustainable practices into the operations of the village and has started like thinking ahead on Church Street and how do we make that a pedestrian friendly street? We talked about that on the podcast with them. Right. How do we, can we create a recreational trail? Um, between to connect the township of Egg Harbor to the village of Egg Harbor in, in the form of like Murphy Park to downtown. So some of those things he's had a big hand in in putting new options on the table that maybe weren't being thought of before. Right. And then I guess the big question is what happens to those plans now that right. Ryan is leaving? Uh, my, my hope is that his legacy isn't that podcast episode where he laid out this <laughs> grand vision and then it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, my hope is that, you know, there was enough of a foundation left behind that these plans will continue into the future. Do you have any any idea on on how things sit moving forward? Well, that was that was my fear, too. You know, I, I was telling I, in talking to Ryan, I was like, all right, you, you can't leave my hometown screwed here. Like you got to make sure that you you dot all the i's and cross the t's before you leave town um and he he does he he knows why that fear exists but he's like i think we've got some good people we've got some good committees they have good engineers as the the village president john heller said he goes i, I think we're in pretty good spot we'll miss ryan but we um we've got some good consultants to help them with that project and the vision is there so it's it's more about making sure they execute all those things as you can see Especially when you do the highway reconstruction project, it's really important that a community have somebody who is that liaison to the Department of Transportation between the, the DOT and the board and make sure they know all the rules because it, it can get complicated. Town of Gibraltar ran into some issues because they they kind of went forward thinking the state was going to be doing all these things and didn't really check the fine print to find out like, oh, yeah, when the high, state redoes a highway, they only do the highway. They don't just automatically replace all your sidewalks and, and light structures. You have to figure that out and wrap that into the project. Ephraim did a very good job of doing that. Um, but you can run into some cost overruns and some disappointments. And and you really got to have that outreach to, to your community. I think Gibraltar has found out after the fact that a lot of that community really did not want those big black power poles. And I think in hindsight, a lot of people that I've talked to in the village or in the township of Gibraltar said, I wish we would have buried those. So you want to have that outreach and those communication lines open from the very start. And that's what that'll be the challenge for Egg Harbor is to make sure they continue those uh, those conversations to make sure everyone knows what's going on and what to expect when it happens and, and hopefully get ahead of any of those problems. Right. What's next for that position? Is it filled in the meantime? And then and then what happens from here? Um, I believe what they're probably going to do is Tom Strong will be kind of like an interim administrator and then they will open it up. Um, maybe Tom becomes that guy. Maybe they, they'll probably go through a search for him and put it out to, to other, try and attract somebody there. Um, Ryan, by the way, is going to Saugatuck, Michigan, which is a city of about a thousand people, um, probably two to three hours from Chicago, maybe not quite that far. Um, and similar tourist destination, beach town, um, but a little bit bigger community, uh, uh, as Ryan said, just a bigger challenge for him professionally. And Ryan has a, um, young child, so he's closer to his parents. They live in Michigan, his hometown's in there in Michigan. So, uh, he's just closer to home. So he said that was a big pull for him. Great. So 
Well, thank you, Ryan, for all your work, and we wish you the best of luck in uh, in your new role. And, I, and I'm losing a broomball teammate, so it sucks. <laughs> yeah, th- that is fair. That is probably the biggest takeaway from this. Yes. So, Miles, you just informed me that there's an election coming up, which I can't fathom because I swear I just voted in an election. <laughs> so what what is this new surprise election? Don't worry. Not a new presidential election, despite um, some whispers to the contrary. Uh, that is decided. Um for the April election for local races, the uh, there are a bunch of town and school board um, openings. We gathered all the candidates. You'll find that in this week's paper, so you can look for your community and find out who's running. For the most part, it's chalk. Like incumbents are running uncontested in the vast majority of uh, these races. So it seems like that wave of people wanting to get involved in politics is already starting to slow down. <laughs> yeah, I, my political journey ended. After the election last time, I'm like, I've played, I've paid enough attention. I'm ready to just stop. Yeah, it's always amusing to see this for me when you see the people who come out and and rail against their local elective officials every meeting and complain about them, and then you know, in a, say like the town of Gibraltar, I hear this a lot. That's a I think 1,100 person town, and all three races are uncontested. Nobody has decided to to run against any of the incumbents. So. Uh, the one race that does have a lot of candidates, Gibraltar School Board, there are eight people running, I believe, for three seats. So uh, that's going to be an interesting one that'll have a primary in February. Cool. So check that out in the paper this week, and you can uh, you can start to get yourself familiar with the candidates who are coming up. Uh, speaking of Gibraltar, I just wanted to mention that uh, Gibraltar held their annual One Act. Yeah. Uh, they went to competition. And, and One Act is kind of an interesting thing because it, uh, in theater, a One Act is basically like a 30-minute show. It doesn't have to be, but it you know it's a, it's a shorter show. And schools usually use their One Acts as a way to travel and compete. Uh, Gibraltar is a little bit different in that they're not necessarily competing against other schools the way that uh, some schools might. They are, are basically showcasing their performance and then receiving awards based on you know merit. And this year, obviously challenging, as in, you know, you don't have people in school, you don't have uh, people traveling, right? It, it's it's a hard proposition to get people all into a bus to travel to different schools and then sit in an audience and watch a bunch of one acts, right? Mm-hmm. Which is normally how these go. You would build your set and all of your props and everything and then have to be uh portable. You'd have to be able to move it, right? So you get your slot, you've got 30 minutes or so, you load in your set, you put it up on the stage of whatever school you're at competing, then you put on your show, you have to strike it all back down and put it back on the truck to to go home. Uh, so all of that is uh, pretty impossible right now. And so what Gibraltar did is they, like many theaters, opted to try to stage and put their one act on remotely. So uh, they all got together and students wrote the script. Um, It's all based, it's called Loose Parts, and it's based on kind of how like you've got that junk drawer of all these different things in it and everything is kind of disparate and how that image kind of relates to what we're going through right now Mm -hmm. in the pandemic. And so they wrote the series of, vign- of vignettes that all have to do with kind of what this year or last year has been, right? There's a there's a, a scene in an airport. Um, there's a scene about masking, lots of Zoom talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, by setting it up that way, by having most of these conversations happening between family members over Zoom, they were able to record all of their portions remotely and then put them together for the final product. Hmm. So it actually works out really well in that you're watching a play about people talking to each other over Zoom and it's recorded as if they were. So it, it's the perfect medium for viewing that, right? Um, 
So they put on this one act and they sent it off to the one act competition and they received a number of awards. There were two outstanding actor awards. Uh, Liz and Kurt Thomas received outstanding direction. There was an outstanding ensemble award. So they took home a lot of awards for this. And uh, the best part about it is you can view it online. So we'll, we'll put up the article. Uh, it's in this paper as well, uh, but we'll put it up online with a link to where you can watch it on YouTube and you can check out the students' work. Uh, it's something that was uh, unique and creative and it just shows how they were able to persevere and put on a show despite not being able able to physically be together in the same rooms. Yeah, when you you think about that, um, what these kids are learning through this year might actually be end up being like more important job skills wise than anything they would have done from like, your traditional learning, like not to de- denigrate education and the traditional ways we do it. But um, we're all using Zoom constantly and trying to figure out how to do presentations and how to um, make this work in the in the business world all over the country, people in sales, people in marketing, people in engineering. And the, the here's a bunch of theater kids who probably just learned like one of the most important job skills they could if they were mastering Zoom. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, just think about like the the technology lag that is inherent in so many school systems anyway, when you've got the teacher who is older, who doesn't necessarily understand the technology as well, trying to put on like, hey, I'm trying to play this presentation on YouTube and I can't figure it. And then the student goes up and is like, here, you know, you have to move your mouse this way. You've, ar- you've already had that for so long. And now everybody's like, we have to take on this new technology technology together not that you know uh, like remote conversations or online video chatting is new technology but for so many people this year it is yeah right and so now you have everybody on the same page right you have students and teachers all trying to do this at all age levels so you you kind of have this mass like everybody's adopting this technology at once and what's that going to change things moving forward yeah i mean that's it is a just from that standpoint, it's kind of a world-changing event. Like public meetings will be different forever. Like that is a lot of people talk about things that'll change and what's going to stick around out of COVID. And you know, handshakes will come back. I have, you know, it might not be as prevalent, but I mean, people want to shake my hand now. Like it's not that's not going away. Hugs are coming back. Like I know some people are like, well, we're never going to touch. We're never going to be want want to be around people. Like yeah, we will. Like most of the stuff that happened at 9/11, like most of it went back to normal. Um, but I think the the technology revolution that's happening, not so much in like the the quality of the technology, but in the universalness of us being able to use it, whether right. it's your grandmother in a nursing home knowing how to FaceTime now because it's the only way she can see her family. Um, that's that's pretty remarkable. And that's the thing that's that's going to stick. And I think we're going to have to change rules around what 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 we can and can't do with public meetings what schools expect to do i know that there's already been talking at the the state level about like all right how how do we incorporate remote learning all the time now um because for some students it's actually better like i've heard i had numerous teachers and people in education say hey we have some kids who are actually thriving this way right not everyone a lot of them are really struggling but for some people, it might be a better thing. Right. Speak for yourself about the handshakes because handshakes are never coming back for me. I'm going to hold my <laughs> hand out and then I'm going to move it through my hair when people go for the handshake from now on. So last thing I want to talk about this week, uh, we have talked about the Gibraltar special assessments for a couple of podcast episodes now. Uh Give us kind of the background on, on what the story is briefly, and then we'll talk about where we're at where we're at now, which is people kind of getting the bill and wondering what to do. So give me give me the 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 brief synopsis of what the special assessment story is, and then we'll move into where we are. 
Well, I would guess that most people who own property, especially if you own property in a any sort of urban or semi-urban area, and I'm ta- when I say urban, I'm I'm even thinking like downtown Bailey's Harbor in terms of like an urbanized rural community. Um, you you probably are fil- familiar with what a special assessment generally is, which is basically all right. The village wants to extend sidewalks to your block, or your your community says we want sidewalks on our block. They end at the block over. Let's run them to us, and it's like okay, we can do that, but each house will be assessed proportionally for their like how much of the sidewalk they're getting. So you might get hit with a $900 or a $1,700 or $17,000 assessment. Um, or if they run sewer and water to you, like that might be a $25,000 assessment. Anytime a town talks about expanding sewer and water services, there's usually a, a big discussion and fight about like, all right, do I want to pay that? Like, is this going to cost me a big chunk, you know? Right. And and the, the crux behind this is who pays for it? Do you do you just charge the people who directly benefit for it or do you spread it out across the entire town? Right. Correct. OK. And and in this story, we're talking about people being billed for it because it affects them directly rather than spreading it out. Correct. Correct. So in the town of Gibraltar, they when they did the highway reconstruction on Highway 42 through the downtown business district, they decided to expand sidewalks. Um to go up the hill and connect the school and the YMCA to the downtown area and put in new streetlights. They also ended up deciding to replace a lot of sidewalk throughout the town, um, not just that new portion, but they had to replace some of the old stuff as to, to make it match with some of the other new stuff. So those costs, in, in 2018, the town said they would likely look at an assessment for those, to, to pay for that, but they didn't really release an, an estimate and nobody really knew what that was going to cost the individual property owners and how they were going to come up with that formula. So that's how it stood in 2018. In 2019, they adopted a preliminary resolution to say, we will assess, and these are the properties we're going to assess. But they left it at that. They really didn't go talk about, they didn't put out an estimate, estimated cost. They didn't talk about, they didn't hold a public hearing. They didn't notify those property owners in any specific way other than just doing it at a public meeting. Right. So that's where some of the controversy comes in here. It's it's people being slapped with a bill uh, and it's not as you know widely promoted as like, hey, this is coming up as you might think it should be. Of course, it's posted in all of the legal areas, but it's not like, hey, heads up, we're going to a special s- assessment. You're, you're probably going to want some input on this, right? Correct. Yeah. So where are we at right now? The, the special assessment is is basically being sent out to the folks along that sidewalk, the business owners and stuff like that. Um, what are some of the ballpark prices that that these business owners are looking at? Well, for the most part, um, and it comes in terms of in the form of two assessments, one for streetlights, one for sidewalks. The, the total for some of these businesses take like the Bayside Tavern, looking at about five, five or six thousand um, dollars. Go up the street, other places like Nordor Sport and Cyclery, Brian Merkel, he's on the town board. He's getting hit with uh, about a $7,900 assessment. If I'm, I might be off by a little bit there. Um, but you go up the hill, Door County YMCA, $25,000. Gibraltar School District, $254,000. Peninsula School of Art, $31,000. The Stella Marist Catholic Church, $25,000. And then Half Mile Bridge Condominiums, $150,000. So there are some pretty sizable amounts there. A lot are in that five dollars to $10,000 range. And that's no small chunk for a business that also had their, you know, the project itself cut into their revenue because the streets were, were closed and there were detours around the town for large chunks of the last two years. So they lost revenue there. And then you had COVID-19. So you have like these, these double whammies already. 
And then now you're looking at this assessment. Right. Before we get into what some of the feedback has been, uh, I guess my question is, I can see the argument for a special assessment, right? These businesses directly benefit from having the sidewalks because it increases walkability and you might be pulling people in off the street easier. Uh, What's the argument against that? Why wouldn't you spread this out to the entire town? Well, there's some... This is not uncommon for a municipality to do something like this. It is somewhat uncommon in Door County. Um, The village of Ephraim and the village of Sister Bay both undertook massive projects similar to what Gibraltar did. And Sister Bay's might have been even larger, but in which they replaced all the sidewalks, buried all the power lines, and expanded the sidewalks and did major stormwater work. And neither of those two communities did a special assessment. They said, you know what, this whole village benefits. Now, the, the... footprint of a village is generally going to be smaller than a township. So it's a little more condensed. But you're talking about a lot of people who weren't directly connected to those sidewalks that helped pay for that because they said this benefits the whole village. This is the core of our community. And this is who we are kind of thing. Um, The village of Egg Harbor has announced no intent to do a special assessment when they redo their highway. Um, Then it'll be spread across the whole village. That what that does, obviously, is it makes, you know, like if I live let's say at the top of the hill in Fish Creek, I'm not getting special assessed, but do I benefit from the downtown having sidewalks when I want to go down and shop and, and that's my community and does it look better and all those things? Like is, is it lighted so my kids, do they have good street lights so my kids when they bike through town are safe? Like, yeah, everyone benefits from that. Um, so is it safer for my kids to go to a school where they can walk on a sidewalk to the YMCA and walk downtown on a sidewalk versus on the side of a highway? Like, yeah, there's a lot of benefit to those things. So there's a pretty good case for people to make that like, hey, this is this shouldn't be special assessed. It's not to say that it's totally uncommon for communities to do this, but it's rare in our neck of the woods for that. Right. So I, I think that that lays a pretty good foundation for for the next part, which is uh, how are people responding to this? It seems like everybody would be like, sweet, you know, send me the bill and I'll, I'll pay it up. What, <laughs> what, it, what, it, what are <laughs> yeah, people Yeah, that's saying? basically been the response. So I don't know why I wrote about it. No. Um, <laughs> No, I've, I called around because when I saw this, it was the first time I had saw the number. So I assumed wrong that a lot of people knew about this. So I, I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy that the school is not here to talk about this, the, this massive assessment because they announced this at a November 4th meeting. Um, and what the town has said is that, well, this isn't, this isn't final. These are just our estimates. And they use a formula based on um, any property that's connected to the highway, even if it's only by like a pedestrian access they get wrapped into the special assessment. So like Half Mile Bridge has like a very small, like 15 foot stretch of of an access that connects to the highway. Their actual vehicle access to their property is off of Spring Road, but they're getting hit with 150,000. So they get that the small portion due to the, their front footage, and then they wrap in all the property value of that entire condominium complex. Same thing with Fish Creek condominiums. So those places are like, hey, this is pretty disingenuous. Like, you're just trying to wrap in our the value of this property to offset everybody else's, even though we have, like, this tiny uh, front footage. So there is some discussion about, should we alter that formula that they, that they used to decide this assessment? But in calling people, most of them didn't know. And the ones who did know said, the only reason I know about this dollar figure or this assessment at all is because we published it in the Peninsula Pulse. The town has not proactively reached out to anybody, which... Yes, in a big city, that would be hard to do. But in a small town, you would think that if the school district for your entire community is in your your town and you saw, hey, we're looking at 250,000, I better call them right away so they can work that into their budget. Right. I mean, (laughs) even even, if it's not final. Right. Just from just so you know, 
there's a quarter million dollar bill coming down the road for you. Yeah, it makes sense as a courtesy call to be like, hey, this is what's happening. But also, like, if you don't tell people that they owe you anything, how are you going to get the money? Well, they don't have to, like, legally. So I looked into, like, what the statute was because I was I was talking about this and Deb Fitzgerald in her office right away goes, they, they can't figure that out now. They, you have to figure that out before you start the project. I didn't know that. So then we that led me into a deep dive into the Wisconsin state statutes. And yes, indeed. And and then I also talked to the Wisconsin League of Municipalities, and he concurred with this that yes, you do have to before you even start the project. There, the state lays out in statute very specifically some steps you have to take. So you have to adopt a preliminary resolution and then instruct somebody to create a report that says how you're going to determine the assessment dollar figures for each property, who is going to get hit with those, and then how much it's going to be. You're supposed to come up with the estimated cost or the final cost. And you create that plan, and then you have a public hearing where people can weigh in on that assessment, and then you can start the project. And then, Well, then you can adopt a final resolution, and then you can start the project. All that in the statute is supposed to be done before you even begin. Gibraltar didn't do that. All they did was adopt the preliminary resolution saying that they intend to levy an assessment. Now, at first I thought, well, this this isn't going to hold, but there is kind of a a loophole here. And the Wisconsin League of Municipalities, Kurt Watinsky, the the director there, he said, yes, that's the process right there. But there was a court case in 2008 in Mequon where- It's always a court case. There always is, right? So even though the statute says that that's the process, the court decided, the, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals decided that since the legislation doesn't specifically say you can't do it after the fact, that means you can. So the crux of it is, yep, this is a proper way. And I talked to the town's attorney and the town's uh, consultant, Dennis Stegenberger, and he's like, this is how I've done these for, for decades. So um, and that court case was 2008. So to go back decades would have been questionable back in, before that. But they said, well, yeah, we, we're confident that this is above board and we can do it this way. And I talked to Steve Soans and several other board members and they said, well, this is what the engineer and the, the attorney said was okay. And I think it is correct that they can do it that way based on that court case. Um, it appears that way to me. The question for a lot of townspeople is like, yeah, you can, but like, we're a small town. Should you do it that way? Like, or should you at least hold a hearing that you would not just say, oh, we're holding a public hearing, but like proactively invite people who are going to get slapped with a massive bill <laughs> to get their input and see if there's a better way, or at least let them know sooner that it's coming down. The town at one of its meetings, after we published that, and they kind of lamented the fact that we published it because like, well, we didn't want to blindside everybody the way the Pulse did by putting this out there, which is kind of weird because I think us putting it out there allowed them to not be blindsided. That's our job. It's public record. It was not, there's, this is nothing, this was decided at a public meeting. The roles were available just by requesting them. So it's, but they were not, actively trying to let people know and that's that's not rare commute a lot of times municipalities will do that where they like hey let's let's keep this quiet and until people ask so that we don't have to deal with the, the drama around it but for a township that has erred on these fronts before where you know when they when they try to enforce their food truck ordinance by sending the town chairman who owns a competing uh, owns a restaurant in town to go and enforce that that is just a bad look right Right. So maybe you find a clerk to go enforce that if you think not. that's not a comment on whether or not their rule was correct or not, but it's just the 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 image of it. And then when they built the parking lot um, behind the community center and then they didn't bother to call the neighbors 
that lived around this massive parking lot that they were going to build in which they were going to remove hundreds of trees and send a bunch of bulldozers back there. They said, well, we decided this at a public meeting. You know, it's 10 neighbors. You would think you would just go, you know what, I'm going to go walk over and make sure they know what's going on. So they don't get shook up when a bunch of bulldozers show up. So this town's MO is to like not take a very basic courtesy step like that. And you would think that would change after being sued for the food truck controversy, threatened lawsuits over the parking lot controversy and the massive controversy and having to redo things with the beach project. But they they the town continues to follow that same logic of, well, we had an open meeting and you could have come and commented. Right. Yeah, it's rough. And and the thing about legal precedent is that it can add so much weight to something that otherwise feels flimsy. Like if you if you came to me and said, hey, for the paper, Andrew, you have to do A before B. And I was like, cool, got it. But you didn't say I couldn't do A after B. <laughs> like that that is such a flimsy thing. Uh, yeah, it's but, weird to me that that even worked. But Right. So, yeah, this is a, this is a tough one. On the plus side for the town of Gibraltar, they are discussing hiring a town administrator. Similar to what the village of Eastman has an administrator, the village of Sister Bay, city of Sturgeon Bay, and the town of Liberty Grove has like an administrator-like position. So what that means is they have someone like Ryan Heiss who is, once you decide to do something, they are doing all the the dirty work. They're doing all the minutiae and and making sure people get notified and having those conversations and gathering more feedback for you. Like in the town of Gibraltar, if they had had that position when they did the parking lot, it's not a guarantee, but the likelihood of those neighbors being notified in advance probably goes way up. The likelihood of the school and other property owners knowing that this um, assessment is coming down the, the road goes way up, I think, just by having someone... Because in the board's defense, you know, these are, you know, it's not quite a volunteer position. You run, you've obviously got the ego to run for an office and get elected, um, and they're serving. Like, it's a thankless position, but you are paid a nominal fee for that, and, but it isn't, it's not your full-time job, you know? So the administrator position, now you have someone full-time executing that stuff. In the town of Gibraltar, you have some staff members and stuff, but, like, you don't have that person who's empowered to like go and figure this stuff out for you the way that another community might have. Right. So we we will see what what continues to happen with this. I guess my last question before and, and this can be very brief is 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 there still wiggle room on this? Can this change? So the the town will have a public hearing. They have said sometime in Mar- February or March and at which they have said like this is not final yet. So maybe they change their decision, maybe they decide not to do a special assessment, although I don't know how their bond works if they can do it that way. Um and maybe they change the formula for those assessments. Maybe they spread it or shrink it. But uh, they're they can still change it. Um, we'll we'll see what they what they do once they have that public hearing. I'd imagine a lot of people will ask them to change it. Right. So we will we will continue to follow this as it unfolds. With that, Miles, I think that that just about does it for us this week. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.